So, uh, I know some people do the cold open, like pretend like there's no guests and that feels weird to me. So, uh, we have, uh, some guests on our podcast for the first time, some actual real guests and not just the ghost of my dad who watched the episode and couldn't be on the show. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So we have, we have Caitlin and Nicole from That's Not How Science Works. Which, Yay! If you're a regular listener, uh, you know their podcast as the podcast that we always say we should have on the show. Whenever we talk about something that a science thing that we don't know anything about, <laughs> which is most science things, I feel. Yeah, anything that's like not explicitly related to a, an area of medicine that Brady is familiar right. with. Um, but um, so anyway, uh, Nicole and Caitlin are. Uh, t- you tell us a little bit about uh, your show before we kind of get going. Sure, yeah. we are science enthusiasts who uh, have a show about all of the things wrong with science in pop culture. Uh, we mostly have episodes about The Flash, which has some particularly uniquely bad science in it. Uh, but we will also do special episodes about various movies with guests and friends. And we are currently going through the first season of Netflix's Lost in Space, which Nicole hates so much. I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> And um, after you listen to this episode, you should uh, bop on over to our podcast, listen to that episode of Lost in Space, because uh, Ryan and Brady are going to be guests on that one. And they can rant with me about how trash Lost in Space is (laughs) and how I can't be blamed for how bad it is. That's uh, that's great. And and, and that's that's not how science works is on the Kaleidoscope Media podcast. network uh it's the podcast network that we're a part of uh with here's johnny and wizard studies so uh yeah definitely check out not just our episode but all their episodes uh i'm a listener yeah you will be able to hear us talk about not liking uh lost in space over there but now we can turn to talking about something that at the very least i did not like <laughs> <laughs> Hi, and welcome to uh, Out of Contracts, the show where two friends who have seen part of Star Trek try to watch all of it in no particular order, this time with two other people. Uh, I'm Ryan Howard. And I'm Brady Jungle. And uh, we've already introduced uh, Caitlin and Nicole. Um, so yeah, this is a, a big episode for our show because it is the first time we'll be talking about uh, Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. And this is the finale, episode 15, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. Of of yep. season one of Star Trek Discovery. It's called Will You Take My Hand? Just jump right to that season finale right yep. there. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that is very much like how we started. We started the show with like the sixth to last episode of Deep Space Nine, which prior to this <laughs> was like the most serialized Star Trek series. Yeah. But kind of before we hop into that, though, why don't the two of you tell us kind of your previous uh, Trek experience? Sure. Kaylin, you should go first because you have nothing, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, that, that's pretty accurate. So I actually watched uh, all of Star Trek, Star Trek Voyager and all of Star Trek Enterprise back when they were airing live on television 20-ish years ago. And I've more or less only watched select episodes of Star Trek since. I've seen a little bit of DS9. I've seen a little bit of TNG. I've seen like two episodes of the original series. I've seen all of the... No, I haven't even seen all of the modern movies. I've seen a handful of the movies. We did one of the movies on our podcast. And that's it. So I know enough to be like, okay, I like vaguely know who the Klingons are. But then I get very confused when it's like a different time period of Klingon and one of them is blue. That's better than me because in this episode, it wasn't until I think the very, very end that I 
knew who the Klingons were. I was like, oh wait, those <laughs> oh, were Klingons? They the don't look time? like Klingons. Well, they did not look like Klingons. They yeah, didn't. why do they look like that? This We should save this for the meat of the episode, I guess. Well, we're that's totally cool, though, Caitlin, because we, we're definitely... Um, I think Voyager defend. I don't even know if defenders is the right word. Like Voyager champions on the show. Yes, we like uh, Voyager. I actually just I, I was writing uh, for my old newspaper. I was writing a column for them the other day, and I think I referred to Voyager as the unsung hero of like mid period Star Trek. So uh, we're we're fans. Uh, Nicole, now you. I know you have a more extensive uh, background. I believe. Right? Yeah. So I've seen. Almost all of the original series, I think there's like half of the third season I haven't seen. Um, I've seen probably a few seasons of The Next Generation. I've seen a handful of Deep Space Nine. I'm actually, I know a lot of people love Deep Space Nine, but it's it's not my favorite. And the Ferengi drive me crazy, so I can't watch too much at one time. <laughs> and then I've Fair. seen a few seasons of Voyager. I'm not sure how much of Voyager. A few seasons of Enterprise, and I've seen all of the movies. So I don't like I haven't seen everything, but I have seen enough of everything to know, I feel like a fair bit about the Star Trek universe and about the different time periods that exist in the Star Trek universe. Mm -hmm. So So this kind of leads to we were talking before the recording started about I think I'm the only person who has seen anything of Discovery. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I guess I'll quickly do a explainer that's mostly like me remembering what happened like three years ago whenever the show should we all just before you actually tell us the correct answer maybe the three of us who haven't seen any of discoveries should give our theories as to what is happening and we can see (laughs) if we're right oh yeah yeah that that sounds pretty good go for it (laughs) i don't know if if uh anyone wants to go first if you want me to so i can go for it i did watch this episode with my brother who has seen all of discovery that's out so far uh, and I did force him to like answer a couple of things for me. So I do know that it is set 10 years before the original series, which makes no sense to me at all why that would happen. But that I do know that is true. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that was obviously true because um, at the very end of the episode, they meet up with the Enterprise, which is being commanded by Pike, who was the commander of the Enterprise before Kirk. Yeah, because yeah, he was... Pike was the one that was in the the pilot, like the pilot of Star Trek. Right. But then they turned into a an right. later episode. Yes. With with Spock and which was like one of the best episodes. It's like a, I think it's a two parter. It's one of the best episodes of the original series. The Menagerie. Yeah. 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 Uh, and he's uh, Pike is also in the the two J.J. Abrams. Yes. Directed he Trek dies movies. in one of them. Yes. Yeah. He dies in the one that is a clear nine eleven truther <laughs> analog movie. <laughs> yep. <laughs> We've always talked about that already on the show before. But, <laughs> but yeah, do you need? A, do you want us to like attempt to summarize what happened, or just like list all of our weird questions, or <laughs> what you guess what happened, and, and then? Yeah, I'd at least like to give a crack at at describing what I think happened in the episode. Okay. Yeah, and then I'll give you an actual like quick breakdown of the premise yeah. of the show. So my kind of what I could piece together. My impression is that the Federation are at war with the Klingons. Yeah. And in order to defeat the Klingons, they've recruited, I think, it, so I think she's the, the mirror universe version of the captain of Discovery. Am I right on that? That's what it sounds like. Right. But it sounds also like. It sounds like the captain in our universe died, died. and they recruited her from the mirror universe. 
where everyone has goatees. Yes. Um, (laughs) The mirror universe, which in Enterprise, when the Vulcans landed on Earth, instead of welcoming them, they just shot them and stole their ship. (laughs) That happened in Enterprise, Caitlin. You should remember that. (laughs) I assume that's what they're doing. They kept referring her as Terran, and I don't know that I've heard the mirror universe been called Terran before. Yeah, but. it's the Terran Empire is the name of, like, the evil Starfleet in, okay. yeah. in the Mirror Universe. I mean, I do specifically have the question, is the captain from a different time stream written down? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you guys are close. It's, so, at the beginning of the show, uh, Michael Burnham, the main character, she is serving under our universe, or, like, the Star Trek Prime Universe version of that, of that character whose name is Giorgio, and played by Michelle Yeoh, who's great. And uh, she does die in the first or second episode. Oh, that early. Yeah. Yeah, I think I remember reading that because I was really excited that she was going to be on the show. Yeah, because I remember seeing her on like press. Right. And they're like, BT dub, she's not the main character and she dies really early. And so I was actually really surprised to see her show up here because I was like, I thought you were dead. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the the rumor now is that they're making a a spinoff show that's starring her mirror self that would be amazing i would watch that 100 percent. well she does get away at the end so right yeah uh so um they're but they're not on discovery at that time they're on a different they're on a different ship and i believe it's called the shenzu and they basically i don't remember all the details but they there's a conflict between them and some klingons that kind of helps to set the things in motion to set off this war and Burnham thinks that Jojo is making the wrong decision, and so she kind of disobeys orders and sort of mutinies a little bit. <laughs> Mut- mutiny. A light mutiny. Just a little mutiny. Uh, Just a light <laughs> mutiny. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so she actually gets thrown in jail, which is why she doesn't have the, the Starfleet insignia in this episode, because she gets stripped of her rank. And then... Um, she ends up on this science ship called the Discovery, which is like kind of a research ship, which I think is kind of there. It doesn't really work because the other ships we see are also more advanced, but like it's it's kind of like I think supposed to be their way of justifying why the tech is better is that like it's like this kind of experimental research ship and they kind of go on a few different interconnected science adventures and then they end up getting caught up with some of the Klingon conflict. Then they accidentally end up in the mirror universe for a few episodes, and they find out that their their captain was actually from the mirror universe and had replaced the old captain. And so they kind of defeat him, and they go back to the prime universe to discover that the Klingons are about to win the war. And mirror Giorgio has also ended up in the prime universe and so that she as you see in this episode kind of decides to uh, help Starfleet out in a uh, brutal manner mm-hmm. and that, that's kind of a, a very a very like brief overview of the first season of the show which is the only season I have watched although I do have a, a sub for like the next month of all access so I might watch season two we'll see but yeah okay. well, that's, that's kind of what I figured so I, I feel like I mean if you hadn't seen any of Star Trek and didn't know that the Mirror Universe existed, that might be a little bit confusing, but they did mention a few times that she was from an alternate universe. So yeah. I think the episode actually did a pretty good job of making the plot at least decently easy to follow as someone who has literally never seen Discovery before. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I do think it was a little jarring to me having mostly watched later timeline stuff that the Klingons, like, I just always forget that the Klingons used to be... That in the three of bad. the series of Star Trek, <laughs> they're bad guys, yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah. I'm so used to good Worf. I mean, both Worfs yeah. are good. Caitlin, but... remember, remember that movie we watched that was literally all about the Klingons joining the Federation? Remember that movie? Yeah. <laughs> That's a Caitlyn yeah. baggage problem. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, the Klingons still are kind of bad for a while after that, too. Like, they, most, they most Klingons are. you bump into on TNG are still pretty... I actually don't really like the Klingons that much. Uh, I like Worf a lot. Worf is fantastic, but that's because he was raised by humans and not Klingons. And because his grandfather was a baller lawyer. Yeah. Remember? Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> but Worf is always, like, Worf is also mystified by how dumb the Klingons are most of the time. So I feel like I am Worf. I'm like, yes, I agree with Worf. Why are you drinking with your enemies that you're just going to go to war with tomorrow? And they're like, oh, it's the Klingon way. And I'm like, it's it's very dumb and a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're I, a lot of people do not like Worf very much, uh, but what? we're very pro war yeah no we're, we're big war fans it seems like we're good we're good matches for your podcast yeah we're both pro yes. warf and pro voyage <laughs> yes <laughs> so uh yeah this episode i should say before we kind of get into the actual like recapping and discussion uh is it's directed by akiva goldsman who is uh one of the showrunner people or like showrunner adjacent people at least on the show and uh it's it was written by uh, Gretchen J. Berg and Aaron Harberts. And then uh, Goldsman also has a story credit on it. A little side note on that, because so I watched this right around the same time we were watching um, Picard. And so I recognized because uh-huh. he was he was pretty involved, I think, in in several episodes of Picard, too. So I looked him up to see kind of how involved he was in Star Trek. And he's actually so he's he's been in like both Discovery and Picard, which are kind of thematically similar i would say um he's been pretty involved in those but if you look at his other credits he's um he's done some very good like well-regarded uh movies and things but they all kind of have that same theme of just being like a little more weighty and serious so he did like cinderella man and a beautiful mind um he did i am legend he did i robot um, he he was also involved in Batman and Robin, which I really was happy to find out. I'm I'm uh, extremely pro Batman and Robin as a fun thing to uh, not a good movie, but a very funny movie to watch. Nice <laughs> to meet you, man. What a what a great what a fun movie. Um, so should we continue poorly summarizing this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's go for it. Uh, so uh, I don't know how we want to... I usually kind of end up talking more on the show, so I make Brady do the recaps. But with four of us, I'm not sure how we want to do it. Does anyone... It depends how much of a hot mess you want it to be. <laughs> and by that, I am shamefully pointing my finger at Caitlin. <laughs> if you've listened to don't, our podcast don't before... Don't let me summarize. <laughs> We've cut most of this out when, in editing, but in our podcast, I now have to time Caitlin when she summarizes, because otherwise she'll like start going off on tangents and editorializing, and I'm like, Caitlin, it took you 20 minutes to summarize the plot of Ant-Man, and now I have to cut this down to five minutes. That's yeah. okay. We, we do a fair bit of that, I think. Yeah. That's like our whole show, though. We don't have to talk about uh, like the science of it. Uh, That's so. true. This is true. Uh, so, yeah, Brady, why don't you do it, and then... Yeah, can, I'll keep, I'll keep struggling through this. what I think is going on yeah 
So at the opening of the show, you see that there's kind of these Klingon ships that are approaching that are right about to attack Earth. And then they do this thing where they like zoom into Earth and they zoom back out from Kronos, which is the Klingon homeworld. And then you see that like the Federation ships are similarly approaching the Klingon planet. And they decide, and I may be skipping through some stuff, but they, the plan they come up with is they're going to plant this bomb of some sort in sort of these wells or tunnels that go down underneath the Klingon homeworld. Well, that's that's what the, the Mirror Universe captain is doing. The real plan. Yeah, but the, the people who are actually on the Discovery ship, aside from her, don't know that's the plan. They just know that she has a plan. And in order to carry it out, they need to go down to Kronos. And then it Yeah, and out, they need to find these these tunnels or these... Right, they need to find these temples because there are some tunnels in the temples, but again, they don't really know why. Know why. Yeah. yeah, the cover story is that they are dormant volcanoes that are, like, connected together, and they're going to use them with, like, a geological robot to, like, survey and find targets for the future. That's, like, the cover story. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of interesting that this all hinges on like kind of activating volcanoes to essentially pollute the planet to make it uninhabitable because that is ultimately what happens to the planet anyway kind of i mean it's been a while since i've seen you got you call Caitlin, you have seen that uh, star trek 6 more recently than yes. i think either of us have but don't they basically have to vacate chronos anyway in about say 30 years because of pollution smog and that kind of a thing yeah let me there's some event that happens let me double check what it is um yeah it's not a geological event on chronos what happens is that the klingon moon is destroyed and that that messes up the ozone on chronos and so that's why they're in a lot of trouble and they ask the federation for help basically fixing their planet so it is a geological-ish event, but it's not the volcano issue. Right, right. Okay. Which, okay. if you want me to talk about science, I just want to say that throwing a bomb into a volcano is not going to set it off. So, <laughs> You know, that's another uh, interesting... I think we, we talked about this a little bit on the Picard episode, that this kind of current cohort of people who run Star Trek, it seems like they kind of reuse... A lot of ideas, like most notably bad Starfleet. What if Starfleet was bad? <laughs> but I'm just remembering, too, that at the beginning of Star Trek uh, Into Darkness, that also features Spock having to put a bomb in a volcano. But this time it's to make the volcano not go off. But uh, anyway. Yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about science, since that's what we're here for. I don't know if Caitlin <laughs> actually did any research, uh, but I did. And so... I was just thinking, A, it's very... So they basically say that these these vents that they find in the temple go straight to the core of the planet, but that is... Like, unless Kronos is set up very differently from our planet, that's not a thing that, that really works, because the inside of the planet is just, like, molten rock, but it is very far down and very hard to get there. So you're not just going to have a little tunnel to the surface... From a dormant volcano, or as they find out during the episode, an actually active volcano, mm-hmm. uh, that you can just drop a bomb in and it will just, you know, go way down to the core. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
And you literally mean drop too. She just kind of like holds it over yeah, and just yeah. lets go just and it falls down. It. It's it's like a big well basically <laughs> in the ground and she's like, "All right, drop the bomb down in there." Um the other thing is I I actually did some googling. Can you set off a volcano with a bomb? And obviously this is not something that we've tried in real life uh, a whole bunch, but they have done like they have tried to use bombs to stop volcanoes from exploding or at least to like divert lava flows. I don't know if they've actually dropped a bomb into a volcano to stop it from exploding, but they have used it to try to move lava and it turns out it doesn't work very well because lava is very very heavy. And so mm. it's reasonably unlikely. I can send you guys some articles that that I found um that Wired had on they had like basically a series of articles about volcanoes. I don't know why someone must really like volcanoes over there. But basically, as far as we can tell, that's not going to either stop the volcano or even less likely start the volcano from erupting. Um, one of the articles that I read talked about a researcher who'd kind of looked into the starting the volcano erupting, and it may be possible but not really with a bomb. So what you need to do is you have to find a volcano that looks like it's kind of on the verge of erupting. And then you have to make a sort of a vent into it. And then your best bet is to dump a bunch of water into the volcano to make it explode. Which, so the one bit of Googling I did was actually looking up phreatic eruption because they talked about that. Yep. Um, The like science person who I'd recognized because she was in one of the shorts and I watched one of the shorts. But she was talking about a phreatic eruption and her description of it is not totally inaccurate. She's like water flashes into steam and triggers a massive explosion. Um, Then she was like, oh, it's going to vaporize all the land masses above it. And then there's going to be ash throughout the atmosphere. It's a little like times a thousand, but like it's not a terrible explanation. But it was very confusing to me once I actually looked up phreatic eruptions, how this particular situation would cause one because they don't have very good knowledge of like the geography of the Klingon home world. And there was no like clear, like here's a giant patch of groundwater. Here's a giant lake above this thing that was going to provide the water that would then cause the phreatic eruption. Cause I guess that it happens when water and magma basically come or lava come into. Contact. Right. And so like, maybe if they'd explained it as in, you know, we're going to blow up, this section that leads to a natural reservoir, the water will flow into the magma and that will cause an eruption. That might work. But what they said is, yeah, we dropped it in this vent that goes down to the core of the volcano and it's going to erupt now. And yeah. it's like, no, that's that's actually not like pretty much nothing's going to happen as far as I can tell. And like I said, this is not something that, you know, scientists have studied extensively because we don't really want to go around bombing our volcanoes. Um but as far as we could tell it wouldn't really do much the other part that i thought was interesting is that they talked about how if the volcano erupted it would spread a bunch of ash into the atmosphere and make the world uninhabitable and that has got to be like one freaking massive volcano to make the whole world uninhabitable (laughs) the entire planet yeah yeah exactly like i googled into the the caldera that's in yellowstone that's a super volcano and even if that one exploded, it would be very bad for the United States um, and North America in general, but the rest of the world would still be okay. Um, I think that it said it would spread about three feet of ash to most of the the Midwest and like wow. similarly uh, large geographic area. 
it would be very bad, but it wouldn't make the entire Earth uninhabitable. And that's a super volcano. So, I mean, this has got to be like a super mega volcano in Kronos or something. I, I could be wrong, but my interpretation of that was that it would set off some kind of... I think because of the way that they're saying that the planet, like the core is interconnected and stuff, that it would set off several volcanoes. All of the volcanoes. The <laughs> yeah, all of the volcanoes. Because as we know, all volcanoes are exactly the same and erupt in exactly the same way. Well... Clearly, they needed to just ignore all this volcano nonsense and just blow up the, the moon. Because you know. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, if only they did. <laughs> yeah. Yep, it's, <laughs> it's so true, yeah. And it, it's funny, too, because uh, the article I was reading about the Yellowstone caldera said that, as far as we can tell, the last time the supervolcano erupted, which was, a, like I think it said 74,000 years ago, so a very long time ago, it was very bad. It nearly wiped out the humans that were living at the time. It set off a five to ten year winter, but as you can see, it did not wipe out all life on Earth. So, would be bad. I think the Klingons would survive, especially since they have spaceship. (laughs) And the other funny part about it, too, as this Wired article that was talking about setting off volcanoes discussed, is that even if you did trigger a volcanic eruption, it's hard to say when that would happen. Like, it could be anywhere from a few hours to, you know, sometimes volcanoes are set off by an earthquake and it takes a whole year for the volcano to erupt. So um, it's not like they would set off the bomb and even if, you know, they were actually bombing some sort of natural reservoir that would go down into the volcano and did successfully erupt it, it might take a little while. So Hmm, That's interesting. You know, it's... I think I sent you guys a message, uh, I think yesterday, saying that there wasn't a ton of science on this episode, but I stand corrected. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, I was just like, you can't bomb a volcano and make it around. <laughs> Wait a second. A volcano. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, they end up not actually bombing the volcano. So, well, no, no they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I have one more volcano question then before we continue, which is what would happen if you imbibed a bunch of volcanoes. <laughs> 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 so there is a scene in the in the episode where someone gets high off of uh, volcanic gas <laughs> and ash. Yes. That they take recreationally. And so what what do you, do you know what happened if you if that happened to you in real life? <laughs> um Yeah, I don't know. Uh probably you would feel sick would be my guess. Yeah. Because there's a lot of sulfur a lot of toxic gases come from volcanoes. So I don't know that you would get high. You would probably just get really sick. Right. Well, and she passes out first, but I still feel like, you know, whatever space drugs they mixed into that volcanic, whatever must have been what were causing that effect. Because I also, I I could be wrong, but I think a lot of volcanic gases are kind of more toxic and less uh, make you high. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, my guess is, Maybe she inhaled enough carbon monoxide to knock her out, and that's what happened. It's just kind of hypoxic, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I would imagine that probably the explanation is just that, like, volcanoes work differently in uh, Kronos, right. and, like, they have, you know, hot, they have gases that make you high. <laughs> it's just a well-known fact that on Kronos, smelling those sweet, sweet volcanic fumes is as good as taking some LSD. So. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, all right, so let's, let's keep going, Brady. So they go down to Kronos, and it's um, it's Michael, the main character, and the this mirror universe captain. And then the other two main characters that go down is, and I can't remember her name, but... Uh, Tilly. Yeah, who seems to be like kind of a supporting character, best friend type of person. Yeah, she's one of the researchers on the ship. Yeah. 
And then this guy named Tyler, who is... I have so many so my guess about him. with him is he's Michael's ex-boyfriend who's actually a, like a Klingon like sleeper agent type thing. That was kind of the most I could piece together with, yeah, with him. My recollection of this is that it's really not explained that well in the show itself, but essentially... You're, yeah, you're right. He's basically, uh, he's a Klingon who underwent, like, a crazy surgery to make himself look like a human. And then his DNA and memories were combined with a real human Starfleet officer named uh, Ash Tyler. Uh, and Definitely so then, something you can do. Yeah. <laughs> In the future. <laughs> and so he basically was, yeah, operating as a, as a Klingon uh sleeper agent and then they kind of figure that out and he still has the memories of both of those hosts but he's now the ash tyler part of himself is in control of himself and not the the, his his clear name is vok so the the vok version of himself is not in control okay so it was unclear to me was he like ash tyler this time and vok was just like awakened by something they did or was he vok and then ash tyler took over or like i was like is this like a repressed like previous life or like what's going on so yeah my my recollection of it is basically that that like a while before this the klingons had captured the real ash tyler and i think killed him and then taken some of his dna and his memories and then spliced those into vok definitely something you can do Yes. <laughs> Once again. <laughs> and then did a bunch of surgery on Vok to make him look like Ash Tyler. So the person who was there was a Klingon named Vok, but also like from a memory standpoint, he was both of them. And now like he, I don't remember what happens, but he, he gets kind of like cured somehow. And so like he, the Ash Tyler part of himself is the part that's like in control now. But Michael still kind of can't get over it. Because, and again, I don't know there, it makes it seem like there's like a romantic history between them, that now that she knows that he yeah, was actually Vok, she like is not having any of it and really doesn't want to be around him at all. Well, considering that she was like hiding in a closet while her parents were brutally murdered by Klingons, I kind of get that. Yeah. And that's some baggage. <laughs> uh yeah, so that's that's who he is, uh, you know, a, a rough approximation anyway. It's a little uh, convoluted. Yeah, and so they, they go down to the planet, and they all split up to try to find where these temples are. And the captain finds out where it is first by essentially threatening some prostitutes. And then she goes there, and she drops the bomb. And then shortly after, all of the rest of them figure out where it is, and they go to try to like stop her before she can blow up the planet. Yeah, and in the meantime, they find out that the Federation knew about this plan all along, and that they're not okay with it, so they threaten to mutiny unless the Federation changes helps the them. Yeah. yeah, changes the plan. Yeah. Yeah. And then Michael gives this kind of compelling speech of this isn't who we are, and convinces the Federation to do the right thing. So then they get ready to leave, and they give the remote control to the bomb that's going to blow up the volcano to this character that again and this is the point where i realized that like this character was actually a klingon the whole time 
Right. Um, this this kind of Klingon that they had imprisoned on the ship. Lame Lorel. I, yeah. I don't blame you because the only way you know he's a Klingon is when the evil captain like tries to beat him up to find out information about the Klingon planet. But he is like blue. He doesn't yeah. really look like a Klingon. And we don't have any context. So we yeah, don't Yeah, so th- this is. is my thing <laughs> is, is that through this whole episode, you keep seeing these aliens that look kind of like like Lorel that to me just read as like sort of vague non-specific Star Trek alien you know have like kind of off-colored skin you put some stuff on their foreheads and so I figured they were just like other races that like either lived on Kronos or were like in this part of space and kind of around and I was just like it's weird that they talk about the Klingons so much and I haven't seen any Klingons in this episode yet until the very end when Lorel like goes back to the Klingon High Council and threatens them with this bomb and I'm like wait these are these are all Klingons Oh, see, I feel like... Why do the Klingons look like this? I feel like making an assumption that any other alien species could live on the Klingon homeworld and not be killed by the Klingons and be sentient is maybe a bad assumption. I mean, they had had some pretty sexy prostitutes. Yeah, the Orion were there. (laughs) Yeah, there were a lot of characters that weren't uh, Klingons in, like, that kind of seedy neighborhood, but... Yeah, so there is... Are we gonna... We we have to talk about the one alien, right? Well, wait, wait, wait. So, okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, I just want to explain the Klingons a, a, yeah, little, yes, please. a little bit. So now I don't think that as far as I've seen, there's not an explanation for like why they all look kind of weird. Uh, like they, they're, they're very much like in uh, a friend of mine who listens to the show uh, kind of refers to the J.J. Abrams aesthetic as like bald aliens. Because, uh, you know, like the, the Romulan bad guy in the 2009 Star Trek is is bald and like the Klingons that you do see in in the darkness are like they have hair like on the back of their heads only you know and and so like they're they're very much like in that aesthetic and I don't know why that is I don't think it looks I think maybe the one thing you could maybe say in its defense is as longtime listeners know something happened uh in between this time period and the original series time period that, as Worf says, we don't like to talk about it in terms of <laughs> yeah. changing the way that Klingons uh, look. So maybe they looked like this before that and then they look like Worf looks after that. But the the one character that's in this episode a lot, though, Lorel, is basically, I don't even, I'm not sure if this is the term that they use in the show or not, but essentially uh, that character is an albino uh, Klingon and is kind of shunned because of it. And so that's why that character in particular looks is not colored the same way and stuff. And so that character having the the remote at the end is like kind of this powerful thing of like triumphing over like the Klingon cast system essentially. Mm, okay. Yeah, I kind of figured it was something like that because Star Trek is aware of the fact that in the original series the Klingons look completely different than they do in the series um, that were Next Generation Beyond. Yeah. yeah, I think in Enterprise they have an episode where they try to explain it, but in Enterprise they look like Klingons too. Yeah, they do. In Enterprise they look like regular Klingons. I didn't get to the episode where they explain the Klingons, but I know that they have it because my brother was really into Enterprise and he said that they do address it so i do wonder because they mentioned like the unification of the different tribes of i don't know if tribes the correct word but unification of different klingon like subgroups in this episode like that's a main yeah. point of it so i do wonder if there's some convoluted explanation out there around like which subgroup was in power at which time blah blah but yeah. <laughs> i guess though also just from a 
showmaking standpoint, why would you make a race as like iconic to Star Trek as the Klingons? Why wouldn't you just have them look the same as what everybody recognizes? It seems just yeah. That's kind of how I felt about the Romulans in Picard too, where it's like, well, they still have the ears, but other than that, like you know, there's nothing really. They they don't have weird haircuts. They don't have like the shoulder thing. Well, actually, they have to be you know, sexy just... in Picard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I will say that the the um, one Vulcan in this episode had the class and Vulcan uh, bowl cut haircut, right? Which. But he's a pre-existing character from the the franchise. Though, I get so. that, but like, I just feel like you can make a lot of money as a hairdresser on Vulcan. <laughs> like <laughs> that that presumes that they like care about style and not just practicality. It right? does, yeah, well, that's true. you know. But but like a bowl cut, it, it's not that <laughs> it's not that easy to even keep up. You got to make sure that the whole thing is straight. I don't know. Yeah. Why don't they just shave their heads? I do think they were trying to like show that they were culturally Klingon, but even that was a little weird to me because again, my like watching of Star Trek is spotty and bookended and happened 20 years ago when I was a child, but there was a real like speciesism against the Klingons in a way that was not just like we're at war with them and they've done terrible things, but like in many times of war, you can look up propaganda from countries and see how they literally dehumanize the enemy. And there was a real dehumanization. I mean, I guess they're not humans, but like de-sentient speciesization. Depersonification. Of the uh, Klingons by, um, of course, like Michelle Yeoh's character, the Terran, um, but also by much of Starfleet, I feel like. Um, and that's why Michael had to kind of have a like come to our principles moment with them and be like, hey, these are a group that we care about. And that was very weird to me because like at one point I was like, I'm really confused. I thought half the point of Starfleet is not messing with aliens. And then my brother was like, yeah, but they're post warp. But I'm like, but still, like the way they talk about them feels very at odds with the way that they've talked about other planets and species in my memory. Yeah, we, we talk about this a lot in the show that... That is, like, the ideal, but then, like, the writers can't really seem to... Like, if any of these alien races were real, then Star Trek could be very racist about them, because, like, Earth is, like, the only planet where, like, they have different cultural values among different members of the species, basically. Like, all Klingons are like... You know, it it is kind of like this 80s comedy of, like, all Klingons are like this, and all Ferengi are like this, and, you know... I mean, uh, that's just a classic trope of science fiction in general. I mean, according to Star Wars, Tatooine is literally just a desert planet with, like, two cities on it. (laughs) Yeah, they've never done, like, a story in Star Star Wars about, like, how this this one Jawa is different. Right, right. (laughs) Or, or, Or they go to Tatooine, and it's a jungle, and they're like, I thought Tatooine was a desert, and they're like, Psh, you thought the whole planet yeah, the whole was planet. a desert nerd? <laughs> You're losing those poles, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is literally a line in Star Wars Episode One where someone is flying into Coruscant and he says, the whole planet is one big city, just in case you were. <laughs> yeah. That's a great thing about that movie, the idea that, like, the biomes, that, like, one of George Lucas's biomes is city. Like, right. <laughs> yes. This is a jungle, yes, a jungle exactly. planet, a snow planet. What biome is this planet? This that's is a city planet. A city it's planet. a city. Just a city. Yeah, Coruscant is also a trash planet, too, because, like, I-, I love how Coruscant, I know this is completely off topic, but I love how Coruscant is, like, 
literally a planet where how rich you are depends on where you live, like how close to the surface you live, because you just go further down the planet and that's where all the pores live and all of the rich people are like, Psh, we don't want to deal with those pores that live on the lower levels of Coruscant. <laughs> right. Listen, the Star Wars prequels have actually great storylines in terms of like their classic consciousness and I will defend them forever. <laughs> Look, I think the prequels do a great job of world building. They, they could have used a better Anakin. <laughs> yeah, oh, yes, yes. Uh, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> and they could have used a better uh, screenplay, too. I think I think the yes. story of those movies is really is really good in terms of like the metaphors. I agree. Stuff. I think especially you know, it's funny with the Phantom Menace. Like it's it's not a good movie. But I think the idea of having like a corporation versus a mostly mostly peaceful planet is a really interesting idea that was just executed very poorly. I'm a, I'm a, in particular, I'm an episode one uh, yes, uh, defender person, but I also saw it when I was uh, 10 years old, but I'm going to watch it for the first time with my uh, kids, like very shortly. And I'm very oh, excited yeah. to watch it. How are you, how are you doing exactly it with them? Are you going the kind of people who one like through it. nine or are you going in like production order? Uh, we're going uh, production order. Okay. Uh, then I'm not really sure how we're going to mix in Rogue One and uh, I yeah. guess I'll watch Solo with them because I don't want to be like the kind of I don't, cut all this out. But I, I mean, maybe I, you can hold Road One back a little bit because it's pretty heavy. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure how we're gonna how we're gonna do it. I I um I kind of don't want to. I don't want to be like I, I'm not a big fan of Disney era Star Wars at all. I, but I don't want to be like one of those like nerds who's like I I don't like something so I have to dictate what my kids do. So right. yeah. I will watch those with them all. I'll watch all of them with them once, and then that might be it for me. <laughs> It'll be the last time you ever see Solo. That might be a, a series wrap on Ryan watching the uh, sequel trilogy after that. <laughs> um, if we loop back to Star Trek world building, though, yeah, I think. If they were trying to make a larger point, it would kind of make sense to me, like with which characters they have and how they talk about the Klingons. And I think maybe that's what they were trying to do. But I feel like the writing just fails to come back around to being like the Klingons are people too, sort of. Like Michael has a great moment where her ex-boyfriend who's half Klingon or whatever uh, is like asking her, like, how can you have this empathy for this planet when you know your parents were slaughtered by them and she kind of has a little like talk about how you know that's not everything or whatever but that like moment didn't really carry through for me like at the end what she appeals to is not like Klingons are people too but like Starfleet doesn't do this and yeah and you had the opportunity I feel like to do that kind of thing because they go down to the planet and you know most of the people there are just kind of living their lives and like going to work and going to the bar and that kind of thing, you know, that it's not P- like a whole with planet two of streams of pee uh, on the side of a building. Yeah, I yeah, think I think but... in general the episode had some good ideas, but I found it to be very anticlimactic. Like they resolve everything very quickly, and I agree that they could have played more into the Klingons are people too. Uh, but I will say that what I have heard about Discovery, which again I haven't seen until today, is that. Some people don't like it because it's much darker and grittier. And I think it's interesting because each of the Star Trek series reflects the time period that it's made in. And so I think on some level it makes sense to have a darker and grittier Star Trek series because we are living in a darker and grittier world than we did, for example, when Next Generation came out, which was like right around the time of everything's going to be okay, the Cold War is over. And 
you know, that's that's just frankly not the world that we live in anymore. And despite that, you know, the show was very optimistic and said it it's more important to be a people worth saving than to do whatever we need to do to save ourselves. And I did appreciate the fact that there was still that like classic Star Trek, we should do the right thing because it's the right thing. And like, there is another solution to this besides violence Mm -hmm. that came out at the end of the episode. So do I think that it could have built up to that a little bit better? Yes. But I actually ended up liking the episode quite a bit overall, even though it was like, maybe it's just because I really enjoyed Michelle Yo chewing the scenery the whole episode. It could have been that's why I enjoyed it so much. (laughs) I'm also extremely biased towards a female character named Michael because I have a sister named Michael and there's like no representation of Lady Michaels in the world. So even if she (laughs) spells her name the wrong way, I was like, you go, Michael! (laughs) Yeah, and I I did appreciate the fact that they were on the planet and it was like a bunch of ladies getting stuff done. I was like, yeah, yeah, this is what I am here for. Ladies getting stuff done. (laughs) That's totally fair. I think we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about Picard a few weeks ago or in in the timeline of when this episode comes out a couple months ago. Um, But like... I, I agree that I think the message that this this episode was kind of trying to come around to is good and maybe something that would befit these, you know, maybe darker times that we're living in than, like, say, the 90s. Although it's worth pointing out that, like, the original series of Star Trek came out during a very tumultuous period. Yeah, of that's true. American the original history. series was during the Cold War. Yeah, during the Cold War and during, like, the Civil Rights Movement and, like, you know, post-Kennedy assassination and... I, I agree with that. Um, Vietnam, I think you know. I think the original series is a little bit of an anomaly, and and also was very much affected by the fact that Gene Roddenberry was the idea behind it, right? Because mm-hmm. Gene Roddenberry was very optimistic about the future that we were in. That's part of the reason why the Next Generation is also so optimistic. But I think that, for example, if the Next Generation had come out today, even if Gene Roddenberry had been alive, I don't think it would have been the same series that it was because of the fact that it came out when the cold war was on the brink of ending and like we really did have a period of global optimism um Mm. and i think that the original series also kind of benefits from the fact that it came out yes during a very tumultuous time and yes it was very optimistic but there was also like the hippie movement at the time and star trek's a little bit of a hippie show (laughs) (laughs) but the question is is like what what is the, I guess my, my feeling would be like, what is the purpose of telling stories in that universe if you're going to subvert the, the premise of the show? Which is, and I'm, I don't mind that like it's dark necessarily, although I think that it is a little weird to like have a Star Trek show that you can't watch with your kids after like, you know, 50 years of being able to do so. But like... Right. I mean, but was Enterprise really family friendly? I feel like it really <laughs> skirted those like broadcast it television lines. Yeah. I, it definitely is not like a show that's on CBS All Access where they can do whatever they want. But yeah. I remember as like a twelve year old being like, "This is kind of racy." <laughs> yeah, sure, I sure. think I think each of the Star Trek series has its own flavor. And I think the tone overall is more similar between, like, the Next Generation, Voyager, uh, Deep Space Nine, and the original series. 
Um, and I again, I think some of that is because Gene Roddenberry was still around for that. But like mm-hmm. Enterprise is very clearly coming out around like 9-11. We live in a different world now. Like yeah. Enterprise is a lot about like terrorism and issues between different political entities. And again, I've only seen the one episode of Discovery, but Discovery does feel again like we live in a world where it's hard to come by optimism. And so I'm a little bit conflicted personally because I have always really appreciated the Star Trek view that, you know, we go to space and we find out there are other people out there and then we decide to get our own crap in order. Uh, And I don't think that's realistic, but I do enjoy that a lot. But at the same time, we have a lot of series that play like 100% fully into that trope. And I do like seeing new series that are inspired by political things that are happening in the time and still staunchly hold on to, we still have to do what's right and we still have to be optimistic because if we just give up, then there's nothing that's worth fighting for anymore. So, like, I I agree with you and I totally understand the idea that the general tone of the show is very different from other Star Trek, but I don't know that we necessarily need to limit ourselves to Star Trek shows that have the same tone from the original series. I definitely know what you're saying. I, th- I think what I was trying to say to it, I think ultimately, like, the thing that really trips me up the most, I think, is the specifically, like, the bad Starfleet mm. angle of it. Because it's like, you know, we have uh, up until, you know, arguably there's a little bit of that in Deep Space Nine, but, like, really, it's mostly, like, a 2009 and later like idea of like starfleet being corrupt which does kind of like a make it into like any other like dystopic or like futuristic thing where the government's bad but like also are we supposed to like the lady at the end who's giving them all medals after she was almost going to go with georgia earlier in the episode to blow up the planet and then she only gets convinced not to by michael are we supposed to like think that oh she's good now because she was going to do a war crime and then decided not to. Like, just and, a little it, war crime. Just, late, just dabble into crimes. war crimes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and to put this again up up with Picard, which is like the other modern show, is that like, well, okay, so this happened uh, 10 years before we're supposed to think that Starfleet is great. Like that Starfleet was rotten enough that like at the very highest levels they were going to destroy a planet. And then in Picard... Starfleet's bad again. Um, like there's a evil at the core of Starfleet because they again let a planet get blown up. And so I wrote in my notes like, well, Starfleet is good at top, you know, at most for like a hundred years maybe, and and then the rest of it is like kind of, you know, Enterprise I think gets away with it because there is not the Federation of Planets is not founded yet in that show. Like they mm-hmm. humanity is still figuring things out in a way that the premise of this kind of time period of like the original series, at least through, you know, Voyager is that we've done it. So that doesn't mean you can't have conflict in your show. It doesn't mean that you can't deal with dark stuff, but I think that like, it does kind of undermine this idea of even like, who who are we rooting for? And I think that too, it is, we're not in optimistic times, but like, that's why Star Trek still is resonant is that, we do need we need optimistic and pessimistic media, you know, during times like these. And so I don't know, like the the corrupt Starfleet thing is. I totally understand what you're saying. Um, and I, like I said, I'm a little conflicted because 
like I said, I I do really like that tone of Star Trek. Um, I always have. And I think that's part of, for me, why it's hard to even compare, you know, Star Trek versus Star Wars, because there's just a completely different perspective on what the universe will be like in the future. Yeah. Or the past. Or a long time ago. Right. Or a long time ago, whatever. Um, <laughs> but I think that it's it's also hard because... For example, the the last Star Trek show before this was Enterprise. And Enterprise came out in a time period where people still mostly believed in the government. And I just don't think that's true anymore. I mean, I think a lot of this is, yes, Federation bad. But I think part of it is that we don't really live in a time period anymore where people unequivocally believe that the government is generally trying to do the good thing. I mean, I don't believe that either, but I, I still wouldn't have mind. It'd be nice if that's the case in the future, though. Right. I, I think that that's part of it. Yeah. So my question around that, because I don't disagree with that. I think that makes sense why this recurring theme of the Federation being evil has shown up. But like, why would that not also have shown up during the Vietnam War or right after? Because like, that right. was one of the first times that like, Americans really felt betrayed by their government, or at least, you know, middle-class white Americans. I mean, the only time, the only Star Trek that would have been around for, well, I'm not counting the animated series, because that's its own special snowflake, <laughs> the original Star Trek. And the original Star Trek honestly deals with the Federation very little. It's mostly like, we are out there, we're doing our thing, we're exploring, we're meeting some new aliens, sometimes you know, Shatner takes his shirt off around those aliens. Sometimes things get sexy because it's the 60s and we got to be racy. Sometimes <laughs> we fight those aliens. Like, the Federation is there, but they are much more in the background as compared to later Star Trek series. Yeah, I also, and we have neither seen any of the rest of Discovery nor seen Picard. Yes. <laughs> so maybe that's what, like, influences. But I do think there's actually an element of hope in the fact that like you kind of said like oh we're supposed to believe the only thing that stopped her from doing this thing was michael but like there should be some hope in the fact that this is a federation that's still open to hearing that they were wrong and admitting it like i think that's why we meet michael's adoptive parents right at the end is and and she talks to her adoptive mom about how like she reminded her she should never forget to be human and she talks to her vulcan adopted dad or whatever and he's like yeah i was wrong and i'm glad that you like told us like even the idea that a government can like be reached by one person speaking the truth and then be like oh yeah we were wrong and fix it that like that's a lot of hope right now that's I fair. totally agree. I, like I said, I, I was actually pleasantly surprised because I expected it to just be like dark and gritty. And really the message of the episode is like a group of people can say, no, this is wrong and actually make a difference. And to me, where I feel like I live in a world where if I say this is wrong, no one will hear me and no one will care. That is actually something that is meaningful. So I absolutely understand what you're saying about all the issues with Discovery. And perhaps if I see the whole season, I would feel differently. But just seeing the context of this one episode, I feel like there was still a lot of that classic Star Trek, like we can make the future great. And I would also point out that the Federation has not always been good in all of Star Trek. I mean, you're right. In Deep Space Nine, the Federation is a little bit sketchy sometimes. There are also some times in Next Generation where they're a little bit sketchy. The Undiscovered Country is literally all about, like, sketchy government actors uh, working together to, like, bring down a, a very important event that would um, unite the Federation and the Klingons. Yeah. So I don't think that the Federation has 
always been presented as good. I think it's just usually been good. And then occasionally we find bad actors. And here we're seeing, you know, those bad actors, I guess, taking over. But like Caitlin said, in the end, they ultimately decided, you know what, we were wrong. We do need to go back to our ideals. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's true. I- I'm sure, too, that I'm having seen the first season and really kind of being having a lot of kind of distaste for it as a whole is probably coloring this. Like there is, there's a, one of the other episodes, there is a thing that happens where one of the characters is kind of like tricked slashed forced into eating a cooked mirror universe version of one of the other characters, <laughs> like one of the other main characters. And it's like, I don't want this in my Star Trek, please. Like, the- I, no, that's totally fair. And I'm not saying, I'm not defending what I haven't seen. I'm specifically defending this episode. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I, I, I certainly, I have some uh, baggage that comes from watching like the whole first season. Cause th- there's a few things that I, I was kind of hoping to talk about in the context of this episode. And they really weren't as present, you know, cause there's some stuff with like the war too, where I think that from like a universe building thing, it's another one of those things of this makes no sense that this happens only 10 years prior to the to the original series because the stuff that the Klingons do during the war is like so so horrible that the idea that they're just kind of like in a detente 10 years later and then like 20 years after that they've made peace like without any kind of like regime change it's like this weird thing of like it's like if World War II ended but Nazi Germany still was around and then like we made peace with like Hitler's kind of mostly unrepentant son, like, is, is kind of like the way that, that... I mean, in the original series, though, there is a lot of tension whenever they meet Klingons. I mean, it's... Yeah, no, you're right. They do not trust Klingons at all. So I don't, I don't know if it's entirely true that they've made peace with them. And I think that the way that they set up Star Trek The Undiscovered Country, which is when they finally do make peace with the Klingons, is done very well. So that you could believe that, yes, it will take it will take time for people to trust Klingons, but it's important that they do so. Because the whole plot of The Undiscovered Country is that there are a bunch of people who don't trust Klingons and vice versa, and so they don't want this to happen. And yeah. then a small group of people has to be like, no, this is really important for our two um, governments to come together. Mm-hmm. So I think we've mostly touched on like the plot stuff. Does anyone have any kind of like weird notes they wanted to make sure that we talked about and or any just kind of like last thoughts? I, there's one other thing I want to talk about just with a storytelling thing that really bothered me. Because I, I, I also think the, the show as a whole and this episode a little bit less so, but has some kind of, you know, modern prestige and also like especially like modern like cinematic universe kind of like storytelling issues. But uh, just wanted to hear what from the people, you know. Good, good or bad, like kind of some other thoughts that we we haven't maybe talked about yet. I have one more question about like what the Cracker Jack is happening here. Uh, yeah, okay. At some point, they like shrink the discovery and hide it in a cave. What is going on? It's like a very uh, short scene, but like I swear they shrunk shrunk the ship. <laughs> I'm trying to even remember I when remember I did what not catch about? that. Are you sure either. you saw what you think you saw? Yes, because when they're looking at the map with the half Klingon ex-boyfriend and they're okay, like, now I want to look this at this is like the cave where the discovery is going to be hidden. And like, here's the different spots. Which of these is the best one for us to drop the like probe into? And then there's a very short sequence where it's like 
the ship appears in like a cave thing and it's definitely not full size. Anyway. Okay, just a second. I know I'm trying to find about, this. I didn't clock that it had gotten smaller. Now they they do have like a like a special experimental navigation system in the thing that's powered by like this uh, alien creature, basically, like by energy from its body, um, which they kind of mentioned at the very end of this uh, in passing, which allows them to kind of teleport or like travel at much faster than warp speed. Um, so maybe that was involved, but I, I guess oh. I don't, I didn't pick up like the size changing uh, element of it though, I guess. I mean, I assumed they changed in size because they were in space and then they were, they appeared to be in a cave. But I, maybe I, it was a very small sequence. Okay, I'm watching, I'm watching the scene right now. I'm it's very right confused. after the captain wears a very sweet outfit. Because <laughs> that's what my notes say. <laughs> I, no, I'm fairly certain they teleported the whole ship into the cave. Okay, yeah. Watching that again, so I'm pretty just a sure really they teleported cave. the whole ship. Yeah. So the answer is they never explain it and we don't know. Yeah. Well, no, I think... They teleport in with their technology, but I don't know that they changed the size of it. I don't think they changed the size. I think they just straight up teleported the whole ship into a cave. How is their cave that big? Caitlin, do you know that there are big caves sometimes? Okay, fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happens when you have one volcano that can blow up the whole planet. I was going to say, it's probably just one of those giant (laughs) lava chutes that goes to the center of the planet. (laughs) Okay, okay. Hollow Earth conspiracy theorists would love love Kronos. (laughs) I think my only notes that I have is I like how Michelle Yeoh is like, you need to dress like low lives, and then they all come out wearing like these super sweet black leather outfits. That's right. like she has like a feather cape, and it's legit. I, know. I was like, <laughs> I don't want to dress like low lives on Kronos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other random comment I have is there's one point where Michelle Yeoh's character is like, "We're not here for bread and circuses," and I was like, "You misused that." Right. <laughs> like. Bread and Circus is specifically about the idea that you can keep the masses from rioting by giving them food and entertainment, but okay. Uh, that was uh, definitely like a no one would actually ever say that, those words. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, the, the part that like dress like low lives and then like, I know that Tilly like has braided her hair and stuff of like, dang, these low lives take care of themselves. That is right. Yeah. <laughs> They're high class low lives. <laughs> I mean, it's their only chance to be, like, out of uniform. you got to live it up. She also yeah. straightened all the curls out, like, very quickly. She did. <laughs> she did, yeah. Like, I don't know, man. I just, all I'm saying is that low lives on Kronos, they got style. Yeah, that's like, right. I can't fault them for that. They might do weird volcano drugs, but they got style. <laughs> I guess the only thing, I, I feel like we have to talk about this, and I've been trying to come up with a tasteful way to do it, but... The two penises? Yeah, that I... I suppose if I, like, thought about it enough, I would believe that somewhere in the universe there's an alien species that has two urethra, but I didn't think I really needed to be forced to think about that. I don't think that's something I needed in my life. <laughs> oh, I missed that, but I also didn't watch most of the parts where they had nudity, so... Well, no, it's it's when they're just, like, walking through the streets, you just see, like, two streams of urine up, going up against a wall. Oh, that's right, yeah. yeah. I guess I didn't even think about oh, yeah. that, but... You know, when your bladder's really big and you need to get it out better, then yeah. evolution gives you two penises, I guess. <laughs> well, okay. I can't believe I'm going to say this. <laughs> but there's a really wide variety of penis shapes in the mammalian world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And like That's there's true. forked penises and there's penises that have bones in them and there's yeah. corkscrew penises. Yeah, no, so- I absolutely believe. <laughs> That's just on Earth. Yeah, I believe that that could have evolved. I just don't know that I needed to be forced to think about it. <laughs> you know, hey, are there any times, Brady, that you're in the bathroom and you're like, wow, I if wish only I could I had one more. be so useful if I had another penis. <laughs> I don't know that we're that old yet. But we're <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh. Uh, so uh, my question about that was, I think the first time I watched this back when it came out, I thought that was supposed to be a Klingon. And now I, I couldn't tell this time whether that was supposed to be a Klingon or not. Um, yeah, because, I guess like, this was before I knew that any of them were Klingons. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a... Uh, because like, if that is a Klingon, that raises a bunch of other questions, too, because, like, there are multiple characters in Star Trek who are half-human, half-Klingon, and so then it's like, well, wow, how does that work? That's Unless true. it's like Maybe the mom was a Klingon? I don't know. Yeah, right. That's, that, I mean, hmm. I don't know. Uh, I know Belana Torres, her mom, was a Klingon. Yeah, I was going to say. So, yeah, maybe maybe it only works if you have a Klingon mom. Hmm. It's like a... Isn't it like an animal where, like, they can crossbreed, but uh, only, like... You know, what mules? you're probably thinking of yeah, m- maybe. mules versus hennies, which is the other way around. So mules are where the mom is a horse and the dad is a donkey, and a henny is the opposite way. And mules are much, much, much more common than hennies, largely because, like, it's just a lot easier for a mare to give birth to the offspring of a donkey than it is for a donkey to give birth to a half-stallion child. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So it could be something around that, like where there is something that it physically makes it easier or it could be a socially thing. Like maybe it's more likely for a Klingon woman to be like interested in a human dude. I don't know. I could, you know what? I could see that because Klingons are usually pretty aggressive. And so I could see like some Klingon lady being like, you, man, let's go sleep together. <laughs> You're mine Whereas now. I feel like a Klingon man hitting on a human woman, like the human woman would just be scared and like stun him. <laughs> yeah, that, that does track. I think t- typically speaking, like uh, Worf and Troy in season seven of TNG notwithstanding, like generally speaking, I think that most Klingon men do not appear to be attracted to human woman i mean uh, troy's not uh fully human yeah. either but uh, well but then Worf ends up marrying dax though right which that's I, true, I, yeah. Trill, I, yep. Trill, I also don't but know Worf is also different like yeah. i i don't even consider him a regular klingon just because like for one he's rational um and for the most part uh. i have not seen a lot of <laughs> rational klingons so Worf is <laughs> rational ish i, I, I like, mean i like more Worf rational than most klingons the yes, other that's thing true. that was a little bit weird to me when I was trying to figure out if they were trying to make a statement about like dehumanization of enemies and then like that statement didn't really come to fruition is trying to place the market and figure out if they were calling specific cultural elements from human cultures and then like identifying them more or less as barbarian. I think the Klingons are supposed to be seen as barbarian to us. That made me a little bit uncomfortable, but I don't know if that was intentional or if I was just reading too much into it. That's a tricky line that they walk a lot with Klingons on the whole franchise, I feel like. Yeah, uh, and I think that you're probably right, but I don't know that it's necessarily the writers of Discovery. It's probably the writers of the next generation, frankly. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, too, because I don't really know how well the show ends up executing this, but I remember like when the CBS All Access shows air episodically. They don't, they don't just get dropped all at once like the Netflix shows yeah. do. And I remember when... When Discovery first, like the first couple episodes came out, people were making a lot of noise about how 
the Klingons have kind of like a very, because I think this, they came out in 2017 originally, I think. Um, the, the Klingons in the show have kind of a very like kind of MAGA vibe. Like there's a lot of stuff in the first two episodes where people are kind of like joking that, that like the Klingons really want to make Kronos great again, basically. Cause like they're like talking about like, they don't like outsiders and that kind of a thing. And so I feel like they, they kind of drop that as the show goes on, but I wonder, I don't know, that's potentially something. That's interesting. Yeah. And I could totally see that. Cause I remember that there's a pretty good episode of enterprise actually where Archer meets a Klingon who, I think he's like a retired scientist or something. And even he talks about how in that time period, he's like, I feel like we have gone too militaristic and we have forgotten things like the sciences and arts, which are the things that really make us great. Um, And so I could totally see, you know, Klingon. I mean, what is this like a hundred years after Enterprise being totally into like make Kronos great again? Yeah. Uh, I did think... For me watching it, I think they were trying to use signifiers of like, this is foreign, but like what's foreign to me as a like middle-class white American is not necessarily foreign to everyone on earth. So it was like right. weird. I think that's why it got to me, but it is interesting that you mentioned that because I it, I do feel like CBS All Access is definitely playing with what is happening in the world now and playing with MAGA vibes more like directly in some of their other shows. So it wouldn't surprise me if they were kind of doing some of that here as well hmm. so the, the one other thing i wanted to talk about briefly because this is just like kind of a this is a very uh, illustrative thing i think for this current star trek period and I, and I wouldn't say that i am like totally anti like modern star trek i think star trek beyond is a really good movie and i think there's like parts of the other uh, abrams movies that are, yeah. that are fun and well i will say this for the star trek um None of the new Star Trek movies or series I have refused to accept as canon, as opposed to Rise of Skywalker, which I do <laughs> refuse to accept as canon. Yeah. And this isn't even a conscious choice. This is just my brain will not accept it as canon. <laughs> I just kind of ignore uh, 7, 8, and 9 personally. But, <laughs> That's fair. Uh, but like, I can accept that like there are things about 7 and 8 that tone-wise I don't like as much. But I do accept them as canon. Nine is is basically like a bad dream I had one time. <laughs> My theory is that the whole thing was a bad fever dream Ray had while eating some bad mushrooms while Jedi training. <laughs> <laughs> but Ryan, you were going to make a point about the mind. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, so it's, 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 no, I mean, that's, that's okay because it actually is kind of related because I think this is like a very much like an Abrams thing. And, and now obviously yeah. he's not directly involved with this show, but I think that like a lot of his kind of cohort is like the people like, the you know, Orsi and Kurtzman and, and people like that who are kind of like associated in his school. Uh, and I think there a lot of those people are kind of tangentially evolve with this stuff and it's this storytelling like shorthand thing that i think has become very common in the star trek uh, universe and the star wars universe these days and also a lot of other franchises too like i think the same thing kind of happens in say uh the most recent uh, james bond movie specter of reveals or plot elements that are only of interest to the people who are watching the thing and not to the characters to use Rise of Skywalker as an example, like at the end of that movie, when Rey goes and buries those lightsabers on the 
the farm, and it's like, there, there's no reason for her to be doing that. There's no earthly reason why that character would do that thing. The only thing, the only reason why it exists is for a catharsis on the audiences. Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, and of course, like, the, the ultimate example of this, I think, is in Star Trek Into Darkness, when Khan is hiding his identity, and the only reason why is to surprise the viewers, because yeah. the people in that movie would have no reason to know who Khan uh, is. Right. Um, and, and so, like, the reveal of, you know, as Brady told me a, a long time ago, that what they should say in that part where he says, my name is Khan, is, my name is Khan, you know, from the movie Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> you remember me and my starring role. <laughs> And this this episode does this, too, in a way that really bugs me, which is that what is the cliffhanger of this episode if you are not a viewer of Star Trek, but are instead a character on the program? Like the, the cliffhanger of the episode is that they see a ship that is like one of their ships. Like it's that's not like weird or exciting. Like, but to us, it's like, whoa, they saw the ship from the first show. That's so cool. But it's like they all look at each other like with this sense of gravity. But it's like that's not that's not important to them at all. The only thing now, I don't know that it's explicitly said in this episode, but her adopted dad is Sarek, who is Spock's dad. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Spock is her adopted brother. And so like it's like kind of significant to her because it's like, oh, this is a ship with my brother on it. But like... The show makes it up, makes this big meal yeah. of it. They play the original theme and like they make it seem like it's this really like portentous thing that's happening. But it, from that perspective, it's not. It's just oh, they saw a ship, you know. Oh well, so, I wonder. I wonder if it was a big deal for them though, because I know that the Enterprise in the original series was kind of uniquely tasked with we're gonna explore the universe now, folks. So it's kind of like seeing a, a rock star type of thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that's. Kind of what I assume. Sorry, Caitlin. Well, I was gonna. I, I'm glad we're discussing this because the very last question I had was, why do they all look surprised to see the Enterprise? Like, <laughs> what is the thing that makes them surprised? And my brother was like, well, like when they were making the show, they told us that we weren't really going to see the Enterprise. I'm like, no, no, no not us. Them. <laughs> right. Like literally, that. Exactly. Why are that's, they that's surprised? What I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> that's totally fair. I assume it's kind of like I don't know, like if all of a sudden, like, a bunch of cool astronauts showed up, and you're like, whoa, these are cool astronauts. Like, I guess that's what it would be. Or maybe the surprise is that, like, the Enterprise is out is supposed to be out exploring, and for some reason it's not. Why is it here? And they do pick up on a distress signal, so I guess, like... Right. So that's kind of my assumption, but that is, like, completely unfounded. And I, th- I think that's a, a good point, and hopefully something that Season 2 addresses. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think it's necessarily bad to have the sh- the ship on the show or anything. It just seems like a weird, like they react far too much. Yeah, like- you know, you can even even if it was like, oh, we're about to meet a bunch of cool people. Like, you know, you compare that to like, say, any of like the series finales from like season three of like TNG on, where it's or the, the season finales. I mean. Like, where it's like, oh, oh, the captain's been turned into a Borg, or oh, no, like, data might be true. And then it's like, oh, okay, we, we met, we're going to meet some famous people. Like, you know, it's, the show imparts it with so much more gravity than I think that it deserves. To some extent, a season finale is a construction of us, the viewers, viewing the thing. So it is a little hard to say, like, I want it to have gravity beyond me viewing it, but also me viewing it is what gives it gravity. But at the same time, like, yeah, especially now having access to the next like season very easily. I'm like, 
there's nothing special about the end of this episode. <laughs> I was kind of surprised yeah. it was, except for the fact that she earned her little communicator badge back. Uh, there was yeah. nothing special about this as like an episode. <laughs> oh yeah, like I said, I thought that overall the episode was very anticlimactic. Like they don't really have trouble finding the temple. They get there like right after Michelle Yeoh's character. They're just like, don't blow up the planet. And she's like, I, but I want to blow up the planet. And they're like, but if you do, you're going to be running for the rest of your life. She's like, I mean, I guess I don't okay. want to be on the run for the rest of my life. That would be kind of crappy. <laughs> so that would make all a right, fine, here you go. I won't blow up the planet. I yeah. won't commit little genocide. I didn't think it was that bad, but fine, whatever. Yeah. I will say, though, the like kind of full like kind of orchestral version of the original series theme that they played over the credits, that was... That was nice. That was Chef's Kiss. Excellent. I, <laughs> I did click play credits on the uh, autoplayer on CBS Live so I could hear the whole, the whole thing. I'll admit the ending got me a little bit. Like, I think it, I got kind of suckered into the reaction they wanted me to have of just like, it made me want to watch at least the first episode of the next season because yeah. I'm just like, oh, the, and then the Enterprise is in it? That seems cool. I like yeah. the Enterprise. <laughs> I like Pike. He's a cool dude. Yeah. But that's also the thing we were talking about too, Brady, is that like, you got excited because you're like, oh, like, it's the thing I like that I like more than the thing that I've been watching. Yeah. Like, maybe I could watch Yeah, maybe that. I should just go watch the original <laughs> series fair, instead. The thing that I've been watching, I've only watched for one episode. Yeah. So. That's, yes. Yeah. You're right. I also, I know a little bit about where they're at now because I've been watching other things on CBS All Access and they keep advertising Discovery and where it is at now. I'm curious how they get there. I'm trying not to like spoil things if you guys care, but like. There's like a big thing that's going to happen. And I'm like, okay, I want to see the big thing. And then I want to see where they go with it. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. What'd you guys think of the, because we always have to do this whenever we talk about a new Star Trek series on the show. Uh, What did you think of the theme song for the the show? Because many of them, I I simply cannot recall once they're not on the screen anymore. (laughs) That is really funny that you ask that. Because I remember while it was on, I was like, this was nice music. But I honestly can't remember it at all. Nope. And I mean, I think thinking back, the only themes that I remember really well are the original series because it's weird and dumb and uh, The Next Generation and Enterprise because Enterprise is a jam. (laughs) Oh, Enterprise. I I feel like if you can't remember it, Queen of the Earworms, then I feel better about like as soon as you said that, I was like, did I even watch the theme song? I thought the credit sequence was very cool and very pretty, but I do not remember it, and it's not the jam that Enterprise was. I just, I mean, I know that a lot of people didn't like Enterprise because it had words to it, but it was a jam, and I remember those words to these day. I thought, so. aren't there also words to the original that are just never used? Yes, yes because Gene, Gene Roddenberry wrote them so that he would get royalties from the song, but yeah. yes, they're not used. Yeah, we did an early episode where I tried to sing the words to the... the <laughs> That's awesome. Yes, that, that, that does exist. I actually think I do remember this one, unless like I'm thinking of like a different sh- song. But I, I think I do actually remember, it. and I remember being like, "Oh, this is like, this is like pretty good." It's not like an earworm like TNG or the original series, but like I, I could not tell you what the Picard theme was, and I just did watch like ten episodes of that. Yeah, TNG I feel like is a little unfair too because they took that from the first. Star Trek yeah, movie. The movie and so like they actually had like a real big time composer write that theme song so I almost feel like that one shouldn't even count sure but I could not I could not do the DS9 or the Voyager 
Uh, I could do I like the first part of the chorus point. for Enterprise. Okay, well, Enterprise, I feel like part of the problem with that, too, is because my brother was a little obsessed with that, <laughs> that song every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And, like, after watching a lot of episodes of Enterprise, you're like, it's been a long road yeah. getting from there to here. Oh. I, whenever I, I hear that song, I get flashbacks to, like, when I was, like, in my early teens and, like, listening to a lot of CCM. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it just seems like something that Jeremy Camp would have sung. Like, mm. <laughs> Cause I've got faith. Yeah, it's just in my I got heart. faith. It sounds like a Christian song. No one's song. gonna bend or break me. I've got faith <laughs> to believe. We may have to have you guys back for an Enterprise do episode. Anything. I've got strength yeah. in my soul. <laughs> I told you. Yeah, it's like a Michael W. Smith song. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. And then there's the part when they're like, I've got. I've got, I've got faith. Yeah. Yeah. I, yes. <laughs> I look forward to hearing it covered by every Christian band. <laughs> yeah. Brady, you yeah. were saying too, like it, it kind of seems like it's almost ripping off Firefly, even though Firefly came out after it. Like I That was agree. the first thing I it made me think, think of, of, yeah. I do kind of think of the two similarly. What I do like about the Enterprise theme is that Okay, so this song doesn't have a ton to do with the actual series, but it is cool because it shows, like, the progression of rocket flight to warp flight to getting to the Enterprise in that show. Yeah. Um, which is Yeah, fun. it's, like, visually a cool sequence, I think, in the title. Yeah, it's very, it's very cool. And like I said, I did actually think the sequence in Discovery was really interesting because it showed, like, different pieces of equipment being, like, put together in the schematics and stuff. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't remember what the theme sounded like. Yeah, I don't now. remember it at all. <laughs> I mean, it didn't. It didn't have the great. I've got faith. <laughs> Maybe if the song was like, "I'm discovering, <laughs> I'm discovering things in my science ship." I'm really curious to see like what the tone. I mean, like it's going to be a comedy, but like the tone and the, but also like what the theme song is going to be for the the animated show that's supposed to come out later on this year um, on CBS All Access, like. I'm very, very interested in that. Um, yeah, I think that's. I think that's really cool that they're like kind of playing in the space a little bit with that and with the the Giorgio show and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing: Did I think that Giorgio was a a good person? No, no. But would I watch a show about Michelle Yeoh chewing scenery and beating bad guys up? <laughs> I would 100 percent watch that. Yeah, I I can't fault the the writing on this because like the idea of like a bad Starfleet captain just like being transparently really really bad is like a very <laughs> it's a very like common Star Trek thing. Oh yeah. I like Michelle Yeoh a lot. Um I feel like when that show comes out like I don't know that I will have the stomach to watch someone who's that that awful be the main character all the time. I mean I, I mean I will I will watch it I'm sure but like I don't know if that will be like necessarily 100% my jam, but, like, obviously she's super charismatic, and so oh, yeah. that would be think, helpful. I think some of it to me is that this episode was kind of campy, and I You I love, love camp. campies. This is why you love Star Trek so if much. If they have a campy <laughs> show about Michelle Yeoh's character, who is, I mean, Michelle Yeoh is a, a very small woman, and I didn't find it very believable that she was beating up a full-grown Klingon man, even before I knew he was a Klingon. And so if it was just a show where she, like, unbelievably, like, punches her way through the universe, that would be very <laughs> funny to me. 
and that is why I would enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, she's got she's got moves though in in real life. You know, she does does a lot of her own stunts and like a lot of her sure, action moves and sure. anger and stuff. But like, she is a small woman, and yeah. I've done taekwondo, and it's hard to beat someone up if you are a small woman. Sure, sure. <laughs> I also even if you know what you're doing. I mean, maybe I am like in my brain. I feel like that show. Like, yeah, she would. Like, I didn't feel like her character was outright evil. I felt like she was more like. No one is going to get in my way of me being number one, which I think are slightly different things, although they often overlap. Like, I don't think she's going to, like, roam around the universe looking for small children to beat up, you know? (laughs) (laughs) She's not going to look for children to kidnap. (laughs) I could be wrong, but I believe that her spinoff show, she's going to be she's going to be part of, like, Section 31, which is the Starfleet's kind of like CIA, basically. That's perfect. They're in... um, yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, like she's out there a lot. punching bad guys who are more bad than her. I I would watch that. Like I agree. I don't want to see her just like straight up be an awful person all the time. But just to watch her like chew the scenery, punch some ga- bad guys. Like I'm good with that. Right, because yeah. you forget yeah. that part of how Michael got her to be like, okay, I will take the badge and give you the the detonator was that Michael was like. You can do that. Like, you can go do whatever you want. But if you do, you're going to have to kill me first. And do you really want to watch me die again? Because, like, that character, Giorgio, cared about her crew on the mirror world. So, like, she has a heart. She just is a morally ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. She's not really that morally ambiguous if you watch the episodes where they're in the mirror universe. But I I would agree that in this episode, she could come off that way. Okay. (laughs) She's pretty bad. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree. I think that they could easily make it into like a sort of Suicide Squad Birds of Prey yes. situation. Though. Yeah, that's what I think it will be. Yeah. So, which I haven't seen Birds of Prey, but I, I know that a lot of people liked it, even though a lot of the characters are pretty morally ambiguous. Yeah. I've not seen it either. I've heard uh, pretty good things. but I'm just not a fan of hyperviolence. So I'm like, it's nice that you all love it, but it sounds terrible because it's hyperviolence. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's my thing. Yes, that's my thing. So I haven't seen Anyways. it because Suicide Squad was, sounded so uh, awful. Oh, same. <laughs> um, well, yes, I'm not saying that Suicide Squad is a good movie. I just refuse to watch it based on everything I've heard. Yes. But there is a version of Suicide Squad in one of the other alternate universes that out could there have been good. that is actually, that could have been good. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. In the mirror world. (laughs) Yeah, and there's some Suicide Squad episodes of Arrow that I've seen, and those ones are always pretty entertaining. Oh, the Suicide Squad as a concept is great. Like, I'm... Right. I've been slowly reading through the the 80s and 90s, uh, the original version of, like, the current concept of the Suicide Squad by uh, John Ostrander um, and Kim Yale and various artists, and it's really 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 good so i'm not i'm not blasting the idea like overall yeah. just the, the movie itself I oh yeah pretty no rough. we are not i'm not gonna defend suicide squad again i refuse to watch it because everything i've ever heard about it is like it's basically unwatchable mm-hmm. well i think we're good unless anyone has any last thoughts they want to to discuss nope i think i've gotten out all my feelings <laughs> yep <laughs> well thank you everybody for listening Thank you, Nicole and Caitlin, for being on the show. And please do check out not just our episode, but the backlog of That's Not How Science Works. My suggestion would be to like find something that you have watched or are interested in that they've talked about and dig in like that way. That's what I did when I was uh, getting into it. Yeah, so check them out. Check out our other uh, the other shows, the horror podcast, uh, Here's Johnny, and the Harry Potter podcast, uh, Wizard Studies, also from Kaleidoscope. Um, for us, you can... 
follow us on Twitter at contracts. You can email us at outofcontracts at gmail.com, uh, or you can go to our website, which is uh, outofcontracts.podbean.com. Contracts is spelled C-O-N-T-R-E-K-S. Uh, Nicole, Caitlin, you guys want to give some plugs for your own show in terms of how to find it? Sure. You can find us on Twitter at TNHSWpod. So that would be the initials for That's Not How Science Works. Uh, we also have a website at thatsnotscience.com where you can find all of our episodes and fun blog posts for all of our episodes where we have articles and stuff. Um, and we do have a very out-of-context Star Trek movie episode. So <laughs> We do, yeah. You can check out our episode about Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and about how glaciers and frozen tundra work (laughs) (laughs) there's uh i'm sure you could find something from any one of those uh movies to talk about too if you ever want to if you're looking for something to dive back oh yeah no for sure i think it would be fun to do um one of the newer movies yeah Um, Mm -hmm. maybe beyond because i really liked beyond yeah generally nicole's uh perspective on star trek is at least it's internally consistent and therefore mostly gets a pass on the science side yeah it's not as bad as, like, The Flash, where they just make stuff up every single week and, like, Barry's maximum speed changes from episode to episode. Like, one week he can outrun lightning, the next week he can't outrun bees. Uh, whereas, <laughs> at least with Star Trek, like, some of the stuff is implausible, but they build on their own concepts, so at least they they try to have a working science. They do talk a lot about, though, what is like considered to be a reasonable warp speed does change quite a bit, I feel like. There's a lot of episodes where, like, well, that's, yeah, warp that's 8. True. I think they try to okay. nail that down later on. I think in, in the yeah. original series, at least, they just pick numbers that sound big. Yeah. The, the later ones, I do know that they do have some consistency, because usually going above warp 10 is very dangerous, and I feel like they're pretty good about being consistent about that. In the original series, yeah, it's just like... Oh no, warp 7 is breaking our ship apart. What what do we do? And then the next week they're like, "Oh no, warp 5." Let's go to warp 11. <laughs> yeah. I think in the animated series, which is not technically canon, I think there's like an episode where they go to like warp 20 or something like <laughs> that. <laughs> like- yeah, cuz I don't I don't remember why, but I have a distinct feeling that in one of the it's probably either Voyager or TNG. They go to like warp 10.8 or something and they're like, this is as fast as we can humanly go. Yeah, I think there's a Voyager where like more than warp 10 is technically like theoretically impossible or something. I think yeah. that's the one where Tom Paris turns into a slug. There's some weird, something weird. <laughs> yes. that you mean when he turns into oh, physically yes. a slug because he's always kind of a slug metaphorically. Yes, he is. He is always kind of a slug. Yeah. Um, well, Janeway also turns into yes, a that, slug. Yes, that episode I think has something to do with them trying to like reach warp speeds I never reached before. I think that you're right. Yes. Because they're like trying to get home faster, like punch a hole so they can yeah. tesseract through the universe faster, whatever. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well. <laughs> Thank you guys, uh, I, and thank you everybody for listening. And uh, we'll we'll see you guys next time. Thanks yeah. everybody. Yeah, Bye. thanks. Thanks for having Bye. us. Thank you.